Thank you, brothers, for reading those wonderful passages of Scripture. So mightily grew the Word of God and prevailed in the city of Ephesus. On what basis? The story about devilish spirits knowing Paul and knowing Jesus, but not knowing one of their gypsy exorcists. And then the people of that city that were converted, bringing their books together and burning them in a public display of repentance and conversion that was valued at 50,000 pieces of silver, that's how the Word of God grows and prevails mightily because of men's changed lives. I appreciate that passage from Acts chapter 19, verses 8 through 20, and the effect it has on the Word of God growing. Notice that it's growing based on the reputation in the angelic world of the Apostle Paul and Jesus, and it grew in the reputation of those men who brought their books of sorcery, witchcraft, the occult, and burned them before all men. Changed lives are what caused the Word of God to grow and prevail. Then in 1 Peter chapter 2, I, I hope you noticed that Jerry read some words that ye should show forth the praises of Him. How do you show forth the praises of Him? It doesn't say tell forth or speak forth, but to show them forth. And that's the changed lives described there. And in case you have a question when you read 1 Peter 2, it's to Jews written scattered abroad. And it says in verse 10 of 1 Peter 2, which in time past were not a people. How does that make sense? Because they weren't the people. They were rejected by God as being His people. These were the tribes of Israel that were scattered abroad under the Assyrians that were scattered into all nations and God had rejected them. Those words are a quotation from Hosea, which is a prophet to Israel, not Judah, in which he had rejected them as his people. But now through the gospel, they were becoming his people again as a royal priesthood themselves, not the tribe of Levi, as a holy nation in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Not as Jews, but as Christians. That's what that verse is referring to in verse 10. And then he goes on to say in verse 12, which is a key verse, that if your conversation is honest among the world around you, and they refer to it here as the Gentiles, because he's writing to Jews, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. The day of visitation, according to Romans chapter 15, is when the gospel comes to a man. And Paul, Paul describes the day of visitation as when God led him to bring the gospel to those that had not heard it before. And when someone has seen the example of a Christian and it is stuck in their mind, that person is different than when they hear the gospel and God visits them by opening their heart and mind further to the gospel. It all connects with them and they glorify God for the good example that they have seen that confirms the preached word. And then twice, submission to civil rulers and submission to bosses. Both are based on the fact that you fear God. It says, submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. Not for the praise of men. Not to avoid penalties. For the Lord's sake. That's why we obey civil government. And then when it comes down to a forward master, it says in verse 19, it says that we endure grief, suffering wrongfully, out of conscience toward God. In both cases... If people ask us or they look at us closely, they're going to see that we're obeying civil government and we're obeying forward masters because we fear God, which results in them glorifying God, not glorifying us. 
they realize the motive in this person's life that's causing them to obey a government they don't like. Can you imagine being a Jew in Ephesus? That's Turkey. Do you know as a Jew you were a third class citizen? As a Jewish Christian, a Jewish convert, you were a Jew, which the Romans couldn't stand for all the trouble that the Jews gave them in various cities of the Middle East, including Israel itself, and they were Christians. They didn't follow the religion of the Romans. They weren't the polytheists of the inhabitants of Ephesus. They weren't following the religion of the city, which was worshipping the great goddess Diana and the image that fell from Jupiter. You know, they weren't superstitious, so there were a lot of things against the Jews, and yet if they submitted to their, to their civil rulers, it glorified God, because the only thing that could motivate a man to do that when you had a Jewish heart was the fear of God. I want you to see that in both cases, what motivates us is the Lord. And that is why in Ephesians chapter 6 and Colossians chapter 3, it tells us to serve our Master as unto the Lord, and it says that repeatedly. When we get our motivation off of the Lord, our diligence will slip. When we get our, when we get our motivation and our purpose away from honoring God and bringing glory to His name, and honoring Him as our Father by being an obedient and great son at work on a given day, when we slip from that and let it shift over to our bosses because we want a promotion, we want a raise, we want the praise of men, we want a higher title, we slip. The strongest motive that there is for a Christian is the fear of God. And in, in those passages I just mentioned where a th- employment is dealt with at length, it says it several times that we don't want to do it as men pleasers. We don't want to work just to please men. We don't want to work just for men to see what we're doing and to give us rewards because our reward is in heaven and we can bring glory to God. I want to make that very plain. This is why a wise man marries a woman that fears God. Because that man will have a woman that no matter how he treats her on a bad day or how he treats her because he's just a bum like all of us men, she will still be a devoted, faithful, loving, doting wife because she fears the Lord and she knows that's what God wants her to do. Well, every employer we work for should have the same confidence in us men as we do in our wives because they fear the Lord And that is, we conduct ourselves based on that fear. These are wonderful passages of Scripture. I hope you get stirred up by hearing the Word of God. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Just to hear these words that you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, and that you can show forth His praises, doesn't that get you excited? You can show forth His praises. Sister Gloria, Courtney's love of the God of heaven... And Courtney's love of her husband someday, and Courtney's virtue as a woman, is going to be dependent on what she sees, senses, and hears from you every day of her life while you have her. That's true of every other woman in here. She's sitting up now. Great big blue eyes over there. Because, brethren, our role as parents is enormous. It is enormous. The first rule of being a good parent is be exemplary. Because you better be living what you want them to be because they're going to become what you are. And that is scary. Big Buddhists beget little Buddhists always. Big Hindus beget little Hindus always. Big hypocrites beget little hypocrites always. Big carnal Christians 
beget little carnal Christians always without God's intervening grace and miracle. And we don't presume on that. That's why he tells us to be exemplary. You know, why did God love Abraham? Because I know that he will command his household before to go in the way of the Lord before them. Abraham showed them how to do it, and he did it. Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He was out front. He was going to do it. And every parent had, real, had better realize the importance of what I'm teaching uh, on this subject of the things which become sound doctrine. It is much of parents that has convicted me for the last couple of weeks on this subject. Now, I'm modifying what I intended to accomplish with you today. And so I'm going to take a few more minutes and give you a few more points because I'm in serious trouble. I have six pages of notes that I've prepared over the last two weeks and I got through the first half of the first page. And I'm I'm a little irritated about it, but I can't help it. And if you benefited from this morning and I appreciate the feedback, then praise the Lord. And if we walk out of this place with nothing more than this, I am convicted that my life can glorify God without me saying a word about Him, although we should do that as well that my life can influence everyone I meet to glorify God, that I can adorn the doctrine of God my Savior, that I can shut the mouths of gainsayers, that I can protect the Word of God from blasphemy, that I can promote gladness in the heart of God's people, that I can provoke them to love and to good works. Let's go out of here and do it. Let's show everyone. Let's show our children, our spouses, our families, our church, our neighbors, everyone that we meet. And may the Lord bless us to do it and to keep that thought always in mind. We are the sons of God and we should be showing it to bring glory to our Father and His name. I preach about having a good name because Proverbs 22 and verse 1 and Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 2 or 1 says the same thing. But we have another name. And that's the name of God that is attached to us. And He has staked some of His reputation on how we live. Uh, That may sound scary to you, and it's scary for me to say it that way. But you know what? It's Bible truth. How in the world can someone blaspheme God by the way we live unless He staked His reputation to some extent on His people? Deuteronomy chapter 4 says, Other nations are going to look at you Israelites and see the commandments and laws that you're keeping and are going to know... That there's a God, the God of heaven is closer to you than anyone else. His reputation is staked on us. We can disgrace it, or we can bring glory to it. Grab hold of the privilege and the opportunity, as was spoken already by someone who stood in this pulpit today. Actions speak louder than words. So your actions must prove and promote the gospel of Jesus Christ. We believe so many things that the world doesn't believe. The world thinks that fornication and casual sex is super, super exciting. The world believes that two men jumping in the sack and trying to figure out how it will work is super exciting. The same thing about two women. Sodomy. The faggots. They think that that is an exciting way of having sexual pleasure. Do you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that we contend with the wicked when we keep the law. Do you know how we keep the law in the matter of sex? Because we have the happiest, most romantic, sexually fulfilled, exciting marriages in front of the world. Our marriages, the happiness that we have, should show the world that they're wrong. Because casual sex where there's no commitment, there's no love, there's just selfishness, 
is not what God intended. And God is the creator, inventor, sustainer, preserver, promoter, and honoring maker of sex. He invented it. He created it. He promotes it. The world has a whole different concept of it. And we better show our children, the world, our relatives, our in-laws, everyone that sees us, that we have a great marriage relationship between us and our spouses. What a privilege. We can shut them down. They don't know anything about it. We have the manual on sex from the author of sex, the creator of sex, the inventor of it. He told us what, how it can be perfected in this world. And let's show them. Let's condemn all these false uses of sex and the sinful fornication, adultery, whoredom, bestiality, pedophilia, necromania, sodomy, and everything else that goes on in our country. Don't look at me. Don't just forget. Never mind. Um, I love you, brother. What a blessed privilege. We don't, ha- we don't have to go stand and demonstrate on street corners. The Bible doesn't never call us to do that. You know, some people want us to stand on street corners and demonstrate. They want us to pass out flyers. They want us to rip away on the Internet. They want us to do this and do that. Do you know what, what the Bible tells us to do? Live it and show that you've got something better. How in the world are our children going to wait around for us to pick a spouse for them that fears the Lord when supposedly their two parents fear the Lord and they don't have a happy marriage? Who in the world is going to listen to a parent like that? How are our children going to say no to fornication? When fornication, listen, the world says fornication is exciting. Their hormones say fornication is exciting. And if they ever get close to it, everything about them is going to tell them it's exciting. The devil's going to tell them it's exciting. There's a, we've got the Word of God and the fear of God in their hearts. But do you know what else there ought to be? Marriage is the only way that it works. And we can make fun of every other form of sex in this world except the one that is in marriage because that's the one God exalts and it is the only one that really works. Those people, those people that commit casual sex and those sodomites are so unhappy and there's so many diseases and they're so dysfunctional and they have no commitment. There's no security. There are so many negatives and the positives are, are the pleasures of sin for a season and then it eats them up from the inside out. Contrary to what we have in marriage. But you better be showing it. All of this means nothing for me. It's a bunch of hot air. Unless Jonathan and Sherry Crosby have a great marriage. And it's going to be better today than it was yesterday. <laughs> Brethren, are you all with me? Amen. How in the world can we preach, believe, or talk about anything unless we show it? Right. This is what the Lord wants us to do. Then our children are going to wait. And hopefully our children will emulate us. But hopefully our children have something very good to emulate. That means to copy. The only Bible some people are ever going to read is what the life you show them. That, that should be exciting. And you know what? You never know what God is going to put in your path. Never. The Good Samaritan was on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho on business. Who arranged the wounded Jew in the ditch? The God of heaven. He arranged for the wounded Jew to be there and to have been passed by by a priest and to have been passed by by a Levite. This is all in Luke chapter 10. And the good Samaritan found him and took care of him. Brethren, when the wounded Jew was lying in the inn with oil and wine in his wounds 
all bound up with a comfy pillow under his head and cleanliness all around him and a sheet pulled up to his chin, was there a noise coming out of his heart? It was a noise of thanksgiving for that good Samaritan finding him and helping him. Where did the noise go? To the throne room of heaven. As the good Samaritan made his way from Jericho to Jerusalem or vice versa for business, do you think his trading went well that day? If his trading didn't go well, was he just as happy anyway? Because the Lord was with him and blessed him. It is win, win, win when we practice our Christianity. You know what that, you know what that whole lesson is given for? One simple point. Who is my neighbor? It's the man God puts right in your path, on your, in your ordinary course of work. That's who it was. Because the lawyer that tempted Jesus Christ was trying to say that the second commandment that thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself was limited to your friends. And Jesus said, I'm going to tell you who your neighbor is. It's a Jew if you're a Samaritan, and it's a Samaritan if you're a Jew. Because the Jews and the Samaritans didn't like each other. So it was a real test of Christian character to see a Jew there and despise the Jews and stop anyway and help them. And that's what we want to do. We want to be good Samaritans every day of our lives in every way that God leads us. And you're a good Samaritan when you love your spouse and your children see it. And you don't have to worry about doing it in front of your children. Your children already know what kind of a marriage you have, whether you do anything in front of them or not. Because they can sense it and feel it. They've been, they've been around you there all, all their lives. They know when mom and dad are happy. They know when mom and dad love each other. And God forgive us for every moment, every hour, every day, every week, where there was anything between husbands and wives that caused children to question our Christianity, our sincerity, our godliness, and our commitment to Him and to our spouses. One of the main complaints against Christianity is what? Hypocrisy. Let it never be said of us. Solomon knew that a man's character and habits can be learned by looking at his things. Proverbs chapter 24, verses 30 through 34. I passed by the field of the slothful. I looked. I saw. I gained understanding. Aha. A little sleep. A little folding of the hands to sleep. A little slumber. So shall thy poverty come as an armed man. I'm paraphrasing the passage. The whole point was, you can look at the things in a man's life and know what's inside the man and you can know what's happening in his home. If your children are undisciplined, obnoxious, loud, do not respond to your first whisper, you don't really train them at home. You're too lazy. If your children aren't kind, serving others, loving others, they haven't been trained. You can look at children and see what kind of parents there are. The Bible says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. I still tend to believe that. I believe it very much. I'm honest enough with myself, before God, by His grace, that when I see certain deficiencies in my children, I can trace it, and I don't trace it to you. I trace it to me. I cannot go back and undo those days, though I wish I could. I cannot go back... 
and visit that Jonathan Crosby like I wish I could. But I can repent to God for those days, and I can repent to them for those days, and I can change. And I can pray for God to restore the lost years of the canker worm. And you know what? I'm very happy there. And whoever picked, Jesus paid it all. I love you, whoever you are. Jesus paid it all. And He made me white as snow. Now as white snow, I want to live up to being His Son. Thank you, Lord, for your forgiveness. So, when I, when I hit hard on you, and you know about me, we all stand before God, and do you know what He holds us responsible for? Today. Amen. Today. Today. So let's go home today and do those things which become sound doctrine. If you stop and get gas, and the pump doesn't take your 20. When I stick that 20 in, and it takes it and spits it out at me, I take that as an offense. So don't laugh too hard or I'll start calling names because I... That, you know? You know, then I go inside and I'm going to inform them that they have a pump that's not working. Well, my way of informing... Is not very, you know, I'm talking about the flesh. I'm talking about the flesh. There's a whole other way that they can be informed. Have you ever gone in there and said, I'm so thankful that it usually works in taking my 20? Instead of telling them what you think of their pump that doesn't work that's supposed to take a 20? All of this. My point being, how do you know that that wasn't the wounded Jew? The clerk that is standing there that may have walked by my vehicle and saw a a Bible there, or saw that I was dressed up. He's coming from church. They make those decisions in a second, and then when we... Who cares about religion? God in heaven sees every one of those events, every single one. What do you get back inside the vehicle and let down your hair? I can let down my guard a little bit because it's just my son Jonathan and Sherry in here. I want to tell them what I think of something that doesn't work in life. So then my son gets an example of a, a man in the flesh saying things that he shouldn't say. My wife is irritated that she has a husband that's inconsistent with what he just said at church. The ripple effect of all the lives that are impacted by how we live is so important and so great I hope we guard everything we say, every bit of our spirit, our body language, and everything we do that will bring glory to God and exalt the Word of God. Graciousness requires a pump spitting your 20 back at you. How can you show graciousness when it takes it every time? I don't like that any more than you like hearing it. It takes an offense to really show graciousness. It takes an offense to show mercy. It takes an offense... Let's show it. If Bible Christianity and spiritual religion were a crime in this nation, and they may be in the future, is there enough evidence to convict you? Coming to this church isn't enough. If Bible Christianity and spiritual religion 
the things that become sound doctrine were a crime, is there plenty to convict you that you truly live by the Bible? That many factor parts of your life can be raised, that man lives by the Bible. He's a Bible Christian. He's happy. They have this verse in their Bible that says the fruit of the Spirit is, and it lists nine things, and this man has those nine things. Could you be convicted for being a Christian? Or aren't you very loving? Aren't you very peaceful? Aren't you very gentle? You don't have much joy in your life. You know, the jury says, he ain't no Christian. He hasn't smiled since he got in here, and every person we've interviewed said he never smiled. A merry heart shows on a shining countenance. A merry heart has a continual feast. Life is wonderful. Any thought to the contrary is from the devil. One foolish move, one foolish word or sentence from us, we can undo so much in a person's life that may be trusting us and relying on us or on someone who doesn't even know us, but who may have been thinking about what is it like to be a Christian? What does it really mean to be a Christian? This is the evangelism that's taught in the New Testament. If you don't have a godly marriage, I mean an exciting one, a happy one, a sporting one, a pleasant one. You promote fornication. You promote defrauding. You promote divorce. If you don't discipline your children into submission, you praise this generation's brats. When you go into a restaurant and sit down and you hear some little kid three tables away whining, what do you want to do? I want one minute. All their problems can be solved in one minute. Take that little noise box by the nape of his neck and take him out to the car and teach him about life after death. One minute. That is so rude that should, a Christian should never do that. Our children should, should conduct themselves in public. If we take them to a restaurant, that means they're old enough to be in a restaurant. If they're not old enough to be in a restaurant, you shouldn't take them to a restaurant because it's an inconsiderate pig that would take them to a restaurant when they're not old enough to conduct themselves in a restaurant. Because it gives me indigestion to hear somebody who's not a parent. It gives me indigestion in one second. Our children, when we go into a restaurant, this is not for the, our praise. It's for the glory of God. Our children should sit there. They should eat what's on their plate. They should be kind to one another. They shouldn't be throwing things around. They shouldn't be messing up the table. There shouldn't be 30 objects under the table for the staff to clean up after we vacate our chairs. We should do all those things and so that when we bow our heads and pray, the staff can look at our table and realize there's Christians and there's Christian children. That's a Christian family. That's a godly family. If I was ever going to be a Christian, I want to be a Christian like that. All those thoughts should go pouring through their heads if the Lord has opened their hearts and minds at all. We have such an, we can, we, we can have such an influence. And by having well-trained children, it condemns all those who can't handle theirs. When I see a grown man that could bench a couple hundred pounds, that could run a couple miles, could run a 5K, and he has to haul out a 15-pound child or a 30-pound child, what a display of total failure. But it should never be true of us. The minute you bow your head, and we should, and it's not for our praise, it's for the glory of God, and bless our bread, 
before we break it neat, there should be a table there that looks like a Christian family. When you discipline your children so that they conduct themselves well in public, according to Proverbs 28 and verse 4, you are contending with the wicked. You are contending with this permissive generation that we live in. See, we, they won't print our articles in the newspaper. They won't let our sermons go nationwide. We put them on our little website. But we can contend with the wicked by having well-disciplined children. Right. And those of you that have well-disciplined children, quiet children, as they sit, they sit in their seat. My children can't sit that long. That's your fault, parent. Children can sit all day long. Ask my children. They loved it. Spank them, put them in a chair, and let them look at the books in my library from a distance of 10 feet for a few hours while they thought about their spanking. Any, any, you can quote me some of the titles, guys. You've come to me and told me, I can remember that you had John Gill next to so-and-so. And I'm no hero. I just made a decision when I was 17. When I was 17 and saw these little brats running around, I made a decision with a 14-year-old girl. We will never have our lives ruined, nor will we ruin anyone else's life by brats. So we're going to discipline them. Amen. And they can be disciplined. I'm no hero for it. I'm just telling you, this is, the way, this is what we all have to do. Right. And every one of you in here, we need to do that. And for those of you that are doing it, and your children sit well and behave well, they sit in here, they're in a, people come into our assembly. Listen, they, they're, they're adults and they can't sit for two hours. And they see some of our little children sitting for two hours They praise the God of heaven. We get the answer that we're wanting. We don't want praise. We're not doing anything. Do you know what the Bible tells us after we've done all these things? You know, there's a verse in the Bible. It's Luke chapter 17. Don't. When we've done all these things, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. There is no arrogance. There is no pride. There is no boasting in what I'm talking about. It's when we've done it all, we are still unprofitable servants. We can't lay claim to anything. It's by the grace of God. But what a testimony to take them in public, to be able to push your cart down the row, have the one sitting in the little seat, smiling and giggling and playing with itself, rather than clearing the shelves that are at the four-foot level. And the other two playing tag or touch football or tackle football in the aisles. I'm sorry, Mom and Dad, for every time you took us to a department store and Paul and I would run up the down escalator and run down the up escalator. Sorry, brother. Don't tell me you don't remember. Oh, Lord, have mercy upon us and help us. A father and a mother. That means a man and a woman. Same-sex marriages... You know the strongest thing you can say against them? Be walking around in public with a wife or with a husband. Do you know what it takes to have children? A husband and a wife. Do you know what every sodomite has to do to have children? They have to steal them from us. Or steal them from one of their sick segment of society. A man, a woman, and children, well-behaved, happy with each other, loving each other, moving through society, on your street at a 5K race, in a restaurant, going to church, buying gasoline, at a graduation for one of them. I don't care where it is. Let the world see it and glorify God. 
the glory is to the Lord. We're nothing but unprofitable servants and His children in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. And we certainly have that. We can do these things. Do you want to contend against abortion? Then build the happiest family of children anywhere. We don't need to go stand in front of an abortion clinic. God never called us to do that. Listen, the women going in there and having abortion... I don't want to say it. You You won't understand. The best thing we can do against people committing abortion is to love our children and to be happy about our children and to treat them in such a way that they're happy with us. You know, the Bible tells fathers not to provoke their children to anger or to wrath or that they would be discouraged. All that's taught in the Bible. We need to give our children hope. We need to give our children happiness. And a happy family is the way the Lord wants us to contend against abortion. We don't have to write. We need to live. We need to have big families. We need to love every one of those children. Delight in them. What are you so happy about? I'm just happy about my big family. You like paying that grocery bill you're going to have to pay for that cart? Yes. Oh, yes. To sit with this family around a table and feed them? It's precious. It's olive plants round about the table. Start quoting the Bible. They asked you. That's how you, you want to contend against unions? Then work harder than anyone else at your company. Right. And if they ever ask you what you think about unions, tell them. And whenever you go in for a, a performance review, if there's any threat of a union in your company, and we have two brothers in St. Louis that are threatened all the time, and that threat has increased itself recently, when you get in there for a performance appraisal, you tell your boss that there's any threat in that company for a union, that you can't stand unions, and that you will serve the company and you will serve him, without organizing, and that you will tell him if there's any organizing going on behind his back. You say, well, that'd be a rat. You you bet it would, and praise the Lord for rats of that sort. When you tell things like that, you're helping someone in authority, and that is God-blessed. When the house of Chloe wrote to Paul and told him that there were problems in the church at Corinth, Paul sure didn't pick on them in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He was thankful for someone telling him what was going on. We can be that kind of an employee. You know, that's working with the mentality of an owner. And those who own their own businesses know exactly what I'm talking about. That's The employee just wants to punch in and punch out. He thinks that's his work. As long as I can get that clock started, then I'm, I'm doing something. I'm earning money. I can start looking at my watch saying I've pulled down 10 bucks because I've been here an hour instead of thinking how much have I accomplished in an hour. That's how an owner thinks. Because an owner doesn't get paid unless there is accomplishment. But if you have the mentality of an owner, if you're keeping the fig tree, if you're waiting on the master, the master is going to reward you. I know I've repeated myself and I don't care one bit. It is by repetition that things are drilled into your mind. And I hope tomorrow that you go to work and that you are diligent. That you please your master well in all things. That you do not answer again. That there is no purloining of time or anything else that is there. But you show all good fidelity to adorn the doctrine of God your Savior. And you hit that place thankful that you have a job. Because brethren, the roles of those that don't have jobs is increasing right now. And if you have a job and you're being paid well, it is a privilege, it is a blessing, it is a pleasure, it is a gift from God. Use it well. It could go away. The Jews who had the religion of God caused blasphemy by their hypocritical lives. Romans chapter 2 and verse 24 puts it this way by the Apostle Paul. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you 
as it is written. God blessed the Jewish nation with so many privileges of the Word of God, and He's blessed us with so many privileges of the Word of God, we ought to be living it. It doesn't matter if we kiss it. The Catholics, every service, they kiss the book. They carry it over and they put it down. And let's open the Gospels. They treat it with such reverence, but they don't keep it. And the Jews had the Word of God. The Pharisees memorized the Bible, but they didn't keep it. And the name of God was blasphemed because there was one name given to the God of one nation. And it was the nation of Israel, and it was Jehovah. And the other nations of the world heard about the name Jehovah being the name of the God of Israel. But when they heard about the conduct of the Jews, they blasphemed the name of Jehovah because of the wickedness of the Jewish people. Paul said there in Romans 2.24, what I'm saying here is written in the Old Testament too, as it is written. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. We never want that to happen. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. Let's walk out of here. Let's walk out of here. We've got children, parents, wives, husbands, masters, servants, citizens. We've got neighbors. We've got brethren in the Lord. We've got sisters. We've got aged women. We've got younger women, aged men, younger men. We've got a descendant from Titus. We have servants. And we have everything the Bible's told us to do. How are we going to do it? Are we going to be the sons of God in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation? Are we going to let our lights so shine in this world? Are we going to put our light on a candlestick? The way you treat your spouse this day will impact your children. You need to repent for your folly in the past, ask God for strength for the future, and only worry about today. He doesn't care about next week. He wants to know what we're going to do today. Let's treat one another. You know, the Bible, there's so many verses I have for you. We're not done with this subject. As much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. Give none offense, neither to the Jew, nor to the Gentile, nor to the church of God. On and on and on the Bible goes in telling us about the importance of our lives with everyone we meet. Every single person we meet this day, we can elicit praise to God through our lives and them seeing those lives. May the Lord bless us to do that. Amen.